everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, we have one conference final set. How are you doing? Oh my goodness. I'm pretty excited, to be honest. <laughs> my first year with a, a new team, and we're going to the conference finals. It's crazy. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, it's fun. It's fun to be a part of it in a small way, you know. I think I think that is very fair of you to say. You are a part of the Columbus crew. I think a message for any team really in the world right now, if you want to make a deep playoff run in your league, and this could be really any sport, just grab Jordan Angeli. Just or, hire me. Or anyone else named Jordan Angeli. That might, that might do. There's got to be others of you yeah. out there, right? Well, they won't be as cool, but they're still well, out there. Well, thank you. Um, so grab, grab like, an Angeli and, <laughs> and plug him into your broadcast booth and you're going to be set. Uh, but no, the Columbus crew did win their Eastern Conference semifinal matchup last night as we're recording it right now. They beat Nashville SC 2 to nothing in extra time before that game, though. Earlier on in the day on Sunday... Orlando City took on the New England Revolution, and the New England Revolution, as the eighth seed in this Eastern Conference bracket, they beat Orlando City. They're, they're continuing their upset run throughout the Eastern Conference playoffs, and they won that game 3-1. to one. And Jordan, that's where we're going to start today. That's where we're going to start our analysis, because they were that first game. I want to start, and you can go wherever you want after this, but I want to start with some credit to the New England Revolution. They have mm-hmm. won game after game in these playoffs. They have been underdogs in several of them, at least according to the seeding. They are on fire right now. Their DPs are playing well. Their defense is playing well. There is every single piece of this puzzle is fitting together right now, and they're playing at a high level. I would agree with that. And I also think about who this team is with and without Carlos Hill. Yeah. How many teams in Major League Soccer do you think would benefit and significantly increase their, let's just say since it's 2020, points per game because they have Carlos Hill on their team? 95% of the teams in Major League Soccer. And that's been the biggest push, I think, as of late, is they have all three DPs healthy, and the key player in that is Carlos Hill because he just understands the game at a different level and is able to like pick the lock, I feel like. He's just out there picking the lock of the other team's defense. So, yeah, there is a lot of credit due to New England to get themselves in a place where they could compete. But I think you also have to talk about their leadership and that being Bruce Arena and him leading this team and doing what he's done so well for his existence in Major League Soccer is win playoff games. Yeah, I got two things. One thing on each of those guys. First with Carlos Hill, Matt Turner was interviewed by the the broadcast crew, and Matt Turner said – you know, we think we've got the best player in the league, talking about Carlos Hill. And for some reason, I'd never thought about that. Yeah, I'd never put him in my head in that contention for the best player in Major League Soccer. But man, if he'd been healthy this whole season, there's no reason we all wouldn't have been thinking about him in that discussion. Well, if he's on Toronto. Yeah. He's that, he's that guy. Yeah. Oh he's goodness. Pazuelo. We talked about this with Barrich. I think he's a really good center forward, but he's on the Chicago Fire, who didn't do well. So can you be one of those top players in the league and perform really well, but your team not do well? So I think for New England, it's a little bit different because Carlos Hill wasn't healthy the majority of the year. But when he's in there, and if he gets a full year in Major League Soccer healthy, he affects the way his team performs. They win when he's out there. And I would be surprised if next year he's playing – if if he is playing the whole season, that he's not one of the top players in the league. And we'll talk more about Carles Hill because he's a key factor in 
all three of the goals that the New England Revolution scored against Orlando City, but to get at Bruce Arena for a split second. I've been thinking about Bruce Arena a decent amount, trying to figure out what mark he's making on this New England Revolution team, what he's doing that's helping them so much. Because my main Bruce Arena memory, at least in recent memory, is that United States men's national team lost to Trinidad and Tobago. And really that whole World Cup qualifying segment of, of the cycle that he was a part of for the U.S. And so that's, that's most prominent in my recent soccer memory. But then he comes into this New England Revolution team and he turns them into what we're seeing on the field right now. He turns them into a team that's dangerous in multiple phases of the game, that's come in with smart game plans offensively and defensively, and he deserves credit for that. The New England Revolution have built a balanced roster both before and and now kind of after he's been a part of that, and it seems to me that he's giving people clear, simple instructions that they can understand, clear expectations of them that are achievable. He's not trying to do something that he doesn't want to do. He's not trying to set this team up to be Manchester City or to be LAFC and, and Bob Bradley. He's setting up his team to be functional and effective and getting his players to do their jobs that they're best at. And, and for that, he deserves credit. He might not be a tactical mastermind or have any desire to be a coach like that. But man, he is coaching a good soccer team right now. And most often, that means that he's a pretty good coach. Agree. I don't know. I don't know what else I can add to that. I like that. I think that's a good analysis of what he's been able to do with this rev squad. Okay, let's talk goals. Yeah, let's do it. Goal number one. Do you want to walk us through goal number one, Jordan Angeli? Well, I want to talk, I'll let you walk through the goal, but I want to talk about what happened before that actually led to the goal, because I thought it was really interesting, the defensive structure of New England, and you were just talking about this, how Bruce Arena set his team up. And what I was noticing is when you have uh, the players that they do in attack with, especially uh, Buxa, Bo, and Carlos Heel, right? Bo and Heel run around and they are oftentimes occupying a variety of spaces. So defensively, you have to get them honed into like, okay, this is what your defensive responsibilities are as a a three unit. And I thought they were defending almost in like a triangle with Buxa being the top and those other two being right behind them. Did you notice that? Yeah, I definitely saw that shape as well. So when Buxa would go to one of the center backs, say he's cutting... He's going to the center back, and then he would cut the other side off. So say he's forcing the ball to the right side of New England's defensive structure. From there, Carlos Heel would step and press to the next ball if it went wide to the outside back. And then Bo would come in on the holding midfielder, which was typically uh, junior or so. And so from there, they did this high press structured in that triangle that shifted into like almost uh, – um, flipped the triangle when they were in the press. But still, those three were very connected, squeezing and dictating where the ball was going to go next. And even though they didn't win the ball right there, the ball gets played out into a space where the revs know they can win the next ball, and then they're off to create. And so I thought that that structure was really interesting. And I was noticing a pattern, and it paid off for them because that's how this whole goal got started. Yeah, so it starts with that defensive structure. And thank you for walking us through that. The Revs win the ball, and it ends up with Gustavo Bo, who then cuts into the left side. From the right side, he cuts towards the left and plays the ball into Teal Bunbury. Eventually, the ball gets to Carles Hill, which is exactly what you want if you're the New England Revolution. Carles Hill then plays the ball to Tejon Buchanan on the overlap. Buchanan, again, is playing as the right back in this game. And Buchanan gets the ball, moves into the box, and just dances for a second. He dances and draws a foul from Rossell, that defensive midfielder for Orlando City. And he earns a penalty for the New England Revolution. 
Carles Hill then steps up in the 17th minute, and he slots it past Brian Rowe to give the Revs a 1-0 lead. It's a good goal. It starts defensively. I love how you pointed that out. Then it gets the ball to a number of the Revs' best playmakers, gets their young, athletic, fast, overlapping right back into the box, who shows some skill. This is a comprehensive goal from New England. I really liked it, and it was funny how the goals actually looked so similar to each other, especially yeah. with the, the two playmakers in uh when it comes to the goal with Carlos Hill and Buchanan. And before the playoffs started, we talked about Buchanan and how we wanted to see him and whoever he was playing with in behind him at the outside back position. Can they connect and create? But I think that was one of the things that Bruce Arena knew that he had to keep Buchanan on the field when Carlos Hill was healthy, when Gustavo Bo was healthy. And also keeping Till Bunbury in the squad, right? So if... Buchanan is playing forward. Bunbury isn't in there. And I think the, the knowledge that Bunbury has in playoff games, in big moments, in MLS games, he needed to be in there. So pulling him back to the outside back position keeps what he does best, is attacking the channel at speed, with pace, with and without the ball. And so I, I think when you talk about moves that Bruce Arena made, that was that has been one of the biggest moves. And I think a lot of eyeballs have been open to – Maybe Tejon Buchanan is outside back. Yeah, Canada's got to be pretty happy right now. They've yeah. got plenty of options at that right back yeah. spot, and Buchanan <laughs> is one of them. His understanding with Carles Hill, instead of Buchanan being the winger and needing a right back to work off of him or, or needing a, a fullback to, for the two of them to work together, now Buchanan is the deeper player. He's the defender working off of Carles Hill, and their understanding is really, really solid on that right side, and it did play a big part in both of these first two goals. And it gets him running at pace from farther distance, right? Yeah. So I think when he's higher up on the field, he can't quite get to his max pace because he's, and I don't want to say a slow burn because that's the wrong words. He is very fast, <laughs> but he gets faster as of the farther he's running. And I think we see it with the second goal. Oh, that's, that's a great point. It's something I hadn't thought about yet. The next goal is Gustavo Bo scoring in the 26th minute. But before all that, Orlando have the ball in the final third on the left wing. It's Nani in possession and Buchanan and Carles Hill slide over and back to deal with Nani. Buchanan takes the ball right off of him and then plays it forward to Hill, who then waits for Buchanan to get up to speed to overlap outside on the right. And Hill plays a perfectly weighted pass forward to him, who then crosses it into the box. And it's Buxa who actually gets the first touch on it. He slides in as that number nine and hits the ball off the post. But Gustavo Bo's right there. He follows it up, smashes it into the back of the net to make it 2 nothing. But the key here is the working, the relationship between Carles Hill and Buchanan. Hill is patient. Buchanan gets up to speed. And at that point, Orlando City just simply couldn't stop them down their right side. Yeah. And it ends up being a bow goal. What I started watching, and I can't remember if it was before or after the goal, but I was watching Gustavo Bo's movement, or really lack thereof sometimes, when he's off the ball. He has such a good understanding of defensive movements around him that he will pick and choose the right times to go, but also pick and choose the right times to stay and let the spaces and the channels open up. And I think that this run at the far post, he waits a little bit to, again, as the play develops with Carlos Hill, he waits and pulls his run out to create a little bit more space for him. So then when he's running into the box for that second ball, he has the opportunity to be coming at a faster pace than the person that he's getting defended by. 
And the Revs eventually do get that third goal, but only after Orlando City have scored a goal of their own. It's Junior Urso in the 33rd minute, capitalizing on some real mistakes in the back by the Revolution. And then Orlando City have another chance to get back in the game. It's the second half. Daryl DK earns a penalty in the box. Nani steps up and Matt Turner saves it, opening the door for the Revolution to grab that third goal. Really the, the last straw for Orlando City. It's Gustavo Bo in the 86th minute. Really quick, the penalty. Why would you choose Nani? He just missed his penalty in the... I know he made one in the last game, but he, the last one he shot, he missed. And I just feel like he's such an emotional player, which is good. But sometimes having an emotional player take a penalty can not be the best decision because you want someone that's kind of steady Eddie, right? That doesn't have these peaks and valleys with their emotions. And Nani was... he. It was getting to him the whole entire game. I mean, the amount of times that he touched the referee, I could not... I could not handle it. And I think that just shows his emotion, which triggers his team and helps his team sometimes. But I just think it was the wrong decision by Orlando to let him take the penalty. I don't disagree. I just know that I wouldn't want to be the one who tells Nani that he's not taking the penalty. Um, (laughs) But sometimes you got to make those calls. And I agree that that would have been a better decision to have pretty much anybody on the field take that penalty. But Nani, who does not have a good penalty kick conversion record in Major League Soccer. He struggled mightily with those, and he did again in this game. So yeah, Orlando City lose this game 3-1. to Nani's missed penalty does not help their effort. But still, I wouldn't say this was a bad performance from Oscar Bereja's team. I mean, they still score that one goal. They move the ball well. They move the ball in possession consistently. That's been Mm -hmm. a theme from them this entire season. And they gave up some bad goals in this game. They gave up some, they made some defensive mistakes and made some offensive mistakes too. And some discipline mistakes with Mauricio Pereira's red card in the 60th minute, I think it was, around mm-hmm. that time in the second half. But all that to say, it's a solid showing from Orlando City. And even more than that, it's a good year for Orlando yeah. City with how they played soccer under Oscar Pereja. I agree with that. And I really do think that Orlando City plays some really good soccer. And one of the players that I think has continued to progress throughout his career is uh, Chris Mueller. And I was watching him and watching how he operates. I don't even know if you call him a pocket winger, Joe, because he almost plays as another number 10. Yeah. And I was watching and just seeing where he would pick up space. And if you drew a circle between the winger on the the side that he's on, the winger, the outside back, and the holding mid, if you drew a circle between all those three players, he's always in that space. He's always centrally, maybe even tucked in a little bit closer to the holding midfielder. He's just trying to create. And when he has Pereira around him, he it almost gives him a little bit more space to be creative and to be the uh, another playmaker in there. So I thought that was really interesting um, just to watch the evolution of his game and how Orlando used him to be effective. It's such a good strong tactical setup from Oscar Pereja. And we won't spend a lot more time talking about it, but it's a 3-2-5. It gets Chris Mueller tucking inside on that right side, playing as essentially as another number 10 opposite Mauricio Pereira, who's a left-sided number 10 in this setup. And so they're in the half spaces. You've got the the right back on on the far side of the field, stepping high and providing width on the right. Then you've got Nani providing width on the left. And then you've got Daryl DK operating in that center channel. It's a disciplined, strong setup in possession with the ball for Oscar Pereja and Orlando City. Credit to him and and to that entire team and organization for what they've done this season, turning around really the entire club from years past in MLS. 
One last thing. I'm going to go back to the revs really quick because you mentioned the the last goal by Gustavo Bo. And I had talked about his movement in watching how other players move off of him to create space. Go back and watch his movement if you can leading up to that goal and how he scores the goal because there's a lot of times where he just will stand and let everybody move and watch the passing lane create itself. But here he knows where the passing lane is going to be and he has this little nice uh, run in between the seam of the center backs. It was it was beautiful. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Gustavo Bo and his, his beautiful movement will go on to play the Columbus crew in the Eastern Conference final. Columbus beat Nashville 2 to nothing in extra time. Ending Nashville's really impressive, fun, narrative-inducing run in these playoffs. I mean, this is a good storyline that we had from Nashville SC and Gary Smith's team. And we're going to talk about them because they didn't just bow out in this game. They still played hard. They played well, I would argue, in a lot of different facets of this game. But I want to start with not necessarily the elephant in the room, but just something important to note. The crew were missing a handful of players due to positive COVID tests. It's just a good reminder of where we are and in maybe some of the ethical difficulties with playing sports. And though we will continue to cover them as they happen, it is just, I think something that's important to get out there that this is still a difficult time. A lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are struggling and athletes are not athletes. Don't necessarily avoid a lot of the same realities that we're all facing right now as well. Absolutely. And I think it also points out just how much work major league soccer and the teams have put in to create something. So even if uh, players do get um, exposed, I know it was seven players. And so that's a lot of players. But even in that they had isolated players so quickly once they thought that it had happened that that close contact that they talk about. um, There's some good plans in place. And I think it just reminds us that um, you just have to be aware of what you're doing. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. Fair enough. (laughs) Looking at the actual on-field stuff from this game, for me, the main battle, the main on-field battle was not between one player or another player or between a position group or another position group. It was between the crew's possession and Nashville's 4-4-2 defensive structure. The crew controlled the ball for the majority of this game, 
Nashville stepped up to press at times, yes, but as the game wore on especially, they were able to sit deeper in their half, make life difficult for the crew when the crew had the ball. Jordan, what did you see from this matchup? Did you think that the crew struggled to break through Nashville's 4-4-2? Because they hadn't, really, until extra time. I think that they... Even when they broke through, they almost at times played into the hand of what Nashville wanted them to do, which is cross the ball into Dave Romney and Walker Zimmerman and Joe Willis. Hmm. And uh, so the times where they did get the ball wide and they did find crosses, a lot of the those moments were just snatched up by the players. That That's what they've been doing well all season long. Uh, you did start to notice there, – there's a couple things that I noticed in Nashville's structure in that 4-4-2 that you were saying – they were very um, confident in their ability to defend deep. So as the crew built out in a, a variety of different ways, one of those ways was the center back, Josh Williams, a lot of the times didn't have pressure on him. And they were letting him dribble into the attacking half and become almost a holding midfielder playmaker in that role. And he connected sometimes, but it also if they baited him into it too much, it led to good counterattack opportunities for Nashville going the other way. Yeah, I mean, that that willingness to let a center back stride forward with the ball. We saw multiple center backs making aggressive mm-hmm. runs with the ball in this game. But that willingness to let a center back come forward comes with some risk, yes. But if you're Nashville, if you're Gary Smith, I think that is 100% something that they're comfortable with. You said the word comfortable, I think, just a second ago. Mm-hmm. Nashville are willing to invite pressure towards them they're willing to let the team come towards them with the ball because number one they know that they can absorb it or at least they know that 90 percent of the time they can absorb that pressure and neutralize the attacking threat from the other team but then when you invite the other team forward when you invite the crew forward you create space you create space in behind them in the attacking half that when you do win the ball you can make more aggressive counterattacks forward into the other half of the field I noticed that several times early on the the crew would lose the ball. Nashville would win the ball in their own defensive half, and then they'd go quickly. They'd break through the crew's counterpressure and get into the attacking half to try to create something. I think that faded a little bit as the game wore on. I did, At least I didn't notice it as much. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. But that faded a little bit. Yeah, well, you're right. But I also think that the crew's counterpressure was feistier. Yeah, yeah. When they got in tackles, they weren't losing the tackles. They were picking up the second balls a little bit more often. And... uh putting their holding midfielders in better positions to win that outlet ball from Nashville. So you're absolutely right. And and that's, I, I think that there are ways you talk about how Nashville pulled the crew out and tried to use, utilize the space. Well, when Nashville was in their block and crew were passing around the back, I don't know if you noticed this pattern, but uh, the two highest players for Nashville in that four, four, two block would go on a pressure cue when the ball was with a center back and it went into, say it went into Darlington Nagby. So Nagby had one of those two players on his back in that 4-4-2 structure. Mensa would play the ball into him and Nagby would just bounce pass it back to him. So it was just like a, a one-touch pass back to Matt Mensa. From there, the other player in that two front would go pressure Mensa and one of the players would go, that same player would stay with Darlington Nagby. So now it's 2v2. And right away, Mensa wouldn't even take a touch. He'd find the opposite holding midfielder who was then in that gap through the seam of the two pressing players, and they would just play out. It was such a nice little movement from the crew, knowing that if they kept the passes clean in that one-touch structure, that they could play through that first line of 
pressure and try to play in between the lines then of Nashville's press, pulled out a little bit into almost a mid-block. And that's why this matchup was so interesting to me. And I know it didn't come up with any goals until extra time. And so it's a Mm -hmm. lot of scoreless soccer, a lot of battles in sort of the middle stretch of the field or even back in one team's own half. And so that often doesn't lead to the most end-to-end energetic soccer. But if you like the tactical stuff, and I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you at least (laughs) tolerate that stuff or want to learn more about it. It's awesome to see those little intricate matchups in a game like this. It's awesome Mm -hmm. to see how a front two will try to control the other team's buildup. It's it's that stuff that gets me jazzed up. And I want to add in one more intricate little... I don't know, battle within the within okay. the overall war of the cruise possession and Nashville's defensive shape. I noticed a lot the the two center midfielders for Nashville, Dax McCarty and Brian Anunga in this game, they would step up. They would leave their little pocket of space in front of the back four where you would expect Lucas Zellerayan to be. They would leave that space to go and deal with Artur and Darlington Nagby. When Nashville were deeper in their own half, those two players for Nashville had no real issue with stepping a little bit higher and disrupting the the two metronomes for the Columbus crew. They they realized the danger in letting Nagby and Artur get on the ball with time and space, and mm-hmm. they said, we can't have that happen. Yeah, we're still going to pay attention to Zellerayan, but we have to deal with this. It reminded me of, I wish I could remember which team it was in the MLS's back tournament. I think it might have been Minnesota. One team, or maybe multiple teams in MLS's back, said, oh, shoot, we got to deal with Nagby and Artur and they put real pressure, man-to-man pressure at times on at least mm-hmm. one of them in, again, at least one of those games down in Orlando. It was Nashville, Minnesota, yeah. Minnesota. Okay, so Nashville took a Minnesota-esque approach in this game to limiting the time and space and the touches of Nagby or Artur, depending on the moment. And that takes guts to leave zone 14, to leave that zone right in front of your center backs, temporarily unoccupied or at least undermanned if one of those players steps forward. That took guts, and I think it did a good job of forcing the crew to play wider, forcing them to play either quick passes that the center mids had to then bounce to the wings or just mm-hmm. to bypass the center mids at all. A gutsy strategy from Nashville, but I think it paid off. I love that you looked at that side of it because at the field watching the game, I see more of the grand picture than you guys probably see on TV. And so I was watching that same those that same buildup that you're just describing. And I was noticing that because of the crew structure in building up where they go into a three back, they press their outside backs forward, it pushes the wingers all the way up on the back line. So there's three players against the four players for Nashville on the back line. And then Celerion was right in front of Romney and uh Zimmerman and he's just kind of floating in that space saying okay I don't know I'm going to try to make you guys question who's the player that's going to step to me because there was space in there because of that defensive press that you had uh, mentioned but in the moments and it didn't happen until later in the game and you saw it happen with mostly Harrison Awful getting the ball on the wing and finding that early pass into that space where Celerion was and once Columbus started doing that, you could start to see Nashville's cohesion break apart a little bit. And I think it has to do a lot, too, with their willingness to defend, their high intensity in the first couple of games, because they did high press at moments and, you know, they counterattack with such uh, vigor. They started to wear down and you could see that happening. Yeah, you could see it happening and you could see it happen, especially, I think, when they had to recover. In moments, because Mm -hmm. the two goals that the Columbus crew eventually score, neither one of them are in 
their set possession structure. In neither one of those moments do the crew have to break down Nashville's 4-4-2. And in those moments when Nashville aren't in their dedicated block, they're, they're either having to recover or they're scattered and trying to get into that shape. And the crew took advantage of those moments of, of transition against Nashville when Nashville really had to run and move to cover themselves and to, to stop a counterattack or to stop any attack from the Columbus crew. The first goal for Columbus comes in the 99th minute. It's Pedro Santos, and it comes off of a throw-in. They work the ball forward off of a throw-in to Lucas Elarayan, who has a defender on his back and somehow manages to check his shoulder and see a, a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous play. Zellerayan <laughs> sees a run from Jossie Zardes. Zardes then gets on the ball from Zellerayan, gets to the end line, and cuts the ball back into the box for Pedro Santos, who then finishes. But it's not this goal. Again, I want to emphasize, it's not against Nashville's defensive structure. Nashville had to collapse on themselves, had to try to do anything they could to stop this goal, and that the movement and the passing from the crew was too good. I also thought it was really interesting because Celerion doesn't often do what he did in that moment. He likes to get the ball and go centrally or connect um, with players that are running into the middle of the field, right? Whether it's Nagby or Pedro Santos sometimes or Artur. But in this case, he posts up like a center forward <laughs> and uses his body to it as, his advantage. And it really allows Jassy's artists to get a full head of steam and go through cut through the back line so I thought it was really interesting how Celerion took on a different characteristic as far as what he could offer this team in that moment yeah it's impressive not something you usually see from a relatively small guy and someone mm-hmm. you don't really think about having his back to goal almost ever yeah. <laughs> but they, they score yeah. off of that clever movement from Celerion and then grab the dagger just a few minutes later it's the 102nd minute Jossie Zardes scores the goal but it comes after the crew win the ball in their own half Nagby brings the ball down, plays it to Zardes, who then plays it to Zellerayan, who plays it wide to Diaz, who then plays a ridiculous through ball into Jossie Zardes for the finish. It's 13 seconds from start to finish. It's a great through ball, as I said, and a good finish from Jossie Zardes. I'm thinking back in the game, and I want to say there were similar moments to this between Diaz and Zardes maybe five times. That that was open, right? Luis Diaz was finding a little bit of space, and it didn't have to be a lot, but a little bit of space on the wing, and it happened to be a lot of the times in the attacking third, which then the error, the margin of error on his pass is way smaller, Mm -hmm. right? He has to make it so perfect. And because the crew created the space behind by letting Nashville come out a little bit and, and press a little bit, so the space was then behind Nashville, then Luis Diaz's ball had a good weight, but the margin of error was bigger. He could play it farther in front of Jassy's artist, so then he could adjust his run before he got there. It was in late in the second half. I was calling the game on the radio, and I said to the guy, our play-by-play, I said, Chris, this is getting close. Luis Diaz and Jassy's artist are so close on this connection. And then there it was. They sealed that connection in, uh, for the second goal, and it was it was almost like they were knocking, knocking, knocking and finally got that door to open. They finally did open the door. They are on to the Eastern Conference Finals against Bruce Arena's New England Revolution. Caleb Porter called Bruce Arena, I think, the greatest coach in American soccer history. Or I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but that'll be a fun one to see how Porter and Arena try to dissect the other team, how that matchup's going to play out. 
We're going to talk about it when it happens, mm-hmm. after it happens. It'd be cool if we could talk about it before it happens, but we're not, we're not quite that We are good. right now. We just talked about it. You're right. We just did it. Boom. <laughs> we're that good, people. We will talk about that game and the other games happening in these MLS playoffs, and we'll be back again on Thursday. That is our plan Thursday after we have the other side of the bracket, the two Western Conference semifinal games happening. We'll be back on Thursday to review and analyze and break down those two games. The East is set. We're moving on to the West. So we'll talk Thursday. That was great, Joe. Fun, fun episode. Listeners, thank you for listening. Jordan, thank you for joining me. And we will be back again soon.